This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. Another month gone by and therefore time for a roundup with our two favourite environmental journalists, Lau Yaohua and Wong Siu Lin, the co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga. So this month we're going to look back at the floods that recently happened, why it's supposedly happening so often, before we turn our attentions to the skies and discuss how Migratory Bird Day this year calls attention to light pollution and its impact on birds, even right here in Malaysia. We're also going to discuss the lanthanide rare earth mining project that has been approved in Pera and we're also going to look forward to June and discuss World Oceans Day and the effects a warming ocean has on corals. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Uh, Fine, thank good, you. Good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Always good to have you on the show. So let's get straight to it. I think every month we seem to be talking about floods, right, guys? Um, and this month, I mean, the weather has been quite crazy. Uh, some scorchers and then tiba tiba there's like floods and heavy rain and all of that. Um, apparently, we're on a monsoon break. Uh, yeah, what, what can you guys tell us about this? Yeah, so it is becoming very regular now. It's like on a monthly basis, we get these huge floods in uh, Klang Valley, right? And usually at this time, right, you know, when it's very hot during the day, I mean, when I was growing up, we, we would expect that in the afternoon, there will be like a thunderstorm. And that's it's natural because of the way the cities work, right? Uh, with the urban heat island and stuff. Um, but, that, but then now every time like a thunderstorm, you know, extends for longer than two hours, then it's like serious floods in parts of KL. And, and last week it happened again. And um, yeah, it's, it's like no longer surprising, but it's just, uh, well, it's just frustrating, right? And the meteorology department has come out to say that they, they were saying that it was going to be like hot and dry months ahead, but then when the floods came and people were like, you know, what, what happened? You know, you were, you were forecasting hot, dry weather. And then the meteorology department explained that, yeah, so now there is like a, what they call a, a, a monsoon break. And then it is natural. I guess it is expected that there would be, I guess, a stint of uh, increased rain. And then, of course, other experts, you know, um, there was an article in the Star last week where they spoke to several experts and, you know, they also said the same thing that uh, there will be increased rains. So it's like hot and dry generally, but then with increased rains and of course KL being an urban city, hot, hot air rises with a lot more water content in it. So you expect that, um, you know, that there will be rains. Mm. But of course, the experts are also saying that, you know, you, you just because it flood, you can't just blame you know, blame it on having more rains, uh, heavier rains, right? And they say that flash floods specifically is a problem of drainage issues. Mm-hmm. You know, practically like, you know, the, the, the drains are clogged or we do not have enough flood retention ponds, that kind of stuff. And I think it's very obvious, like uh, last week, I actually went down to KL too. I took the public transport. Uh, actually, on the day that it flooded, I, I went down to KL. And actually, along the way, I could see where there was construction then there was like like floods happening, right? Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's all related. So what can we do about it, right? You know, um, well, the uh, federal ministry, the federal territories minister actually said that the flash flood last week receded in like 30 minutes or, or so goes the, uh, the, the report. And he said that was actually a good sign. I mean, it's, it's a sign of success because they had been putting in you know, like interim measures to sort of like quickly prevent or to mitigate the flood damage. Um, so that includes like portable pumps, sandbags uh, and the stuff. So I guess that's good news there. Um, but the longer term solutions are still in the works. They're still trying to you know, work it out. 
and there have been announcement by the federal government that, you know with increased allocation about 15 billion uh, ringgit in allocation for flood mitigation projects for the federal territories over the next decade or so so that's a lot of money going in uh, but it remains to be seen what comes out of it and at the same time we have yeah we hear talks about this like more highways being built to ease the traffic jam in Klang Valley you know yes. I think if we don't have floods I think much of the jam is also eased already yeah <laughs> and let's hope that they keep the retention ponds right we've been seeing so many reports of like retention ponds being marked for development and things like that all you know counter counterintuitive you know to the problems that we're having as a growing city yeah. yeah, I think the other issue really is also these so-called, you know, interim measures. I mean, for 20 years, we've had interim measures. And so, you know, in terms of climate action, it's really, you know, when is the adapt adaptation going to come in? It's all mitigation, if at all, and the mitigation comes after the fact. Yeah. So, you know, quite frustrating, I think, if, if you live in KL and you're constantly getting flooded. Yeah, I'm, I won't lie. I, I live quite far away from the office, right? And every time I see this kind of rain, I'm, I'm terrified because, you know, sometimes when I'm driving home, there are these huge puddles, there's, there's huge floods and it's really quite scary. And I think a lot of people have that fear, especially if they've been through that. So it's really quite traumatizing, actually. Yeah, okay. Well, um, moving on to, I guess, you know, just looking back at this month, there were quite a few observances this month, right, in terms of environmental days. We had Bee Day, we had Turtle Day, Otter Day, um, and there was also World Migratory Bird Day on the 14th of May. Uh, theme for this year highlighted actually how light pollution threatens birds across the world, but basically that solutions are readily available. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, the theme is, is quite interesting. The theme this year for World Migratory Day, uh, World Migratory Bird Day, is dim the lights for birds at night. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw it, it actually didn't occur to me that uh, growing light pollution actually is a problem for migratory birds. Uh, and and silly me, I thought, do birds fly at night? <laughs> um, don't aren't they asleep? You know. But obviously, these migratory birds they fly thousands of kilometers, and these tiny birds, you know, with with whatever store of energy they have, they fly over oceans, they fly over land, and there's an increase in light on both over both uh, oceans as well as as land, you know. And it actually is something that is uh, quite critical. In Malaysia, there have been a few papers that have been published, a little bit of uh, research being done, but they say it's still quite new, so not, not many findings. Um, but how does light pollution affect migratory birds? Uh, well, first of all, it alters like day and night, right? So birds can get, sometimes the lights are so bright, especially cities. And we've seen for for these, um, the WWF event every year, right? Where, where, where they encourage people to turn off lights for that one day, mm -hmm. uh, Earth Hour. Uh, you can see how lights go off in entire cities on the globe. You know, there's this, this, this quite famous um, uh, graphic about that. Yeah. And it's really quite, Imagine if you were a bird flying over the city, would you get disoriented, you know, by, by that? Because you follow traditional flying routes over thousands of kilometers and suddenly there's all these lights, you know. So it does disorient uh, migratory birds, right? It can also change their behavior. It even apparently changes their communication. Um, what happens is they've got this little store of energy that they need to fly these huge uh, over these huge distances and that gets used up if they get, say, directed over to a, a very bright source of light, um, thinking that it's daytime or that, you know, this they just get disoriented, you know. So poor little chaps, uh, it, it's something that perhaps everybody should start thinking about. Because I think, you know, it, light pollution also affects other animals and, and certainly where turtles are concerned, I think there's a lot more awareness. Yeah. Yep, yep. So resorts actually in Malaysia, some resorts are, are really good. They, they make sure that they plant bushes and stuff right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they make sure that if there is a light over chalets and stuff like that, 
that it is actually quite low light or red light, you know, where it doesn't affect the, the turtles as much. Um, so we, we can do that for turtles, we can do that for other animals as well. Mm-hmm. And really, another thing that can be done is you look at the areas where all these migratory birds go, you know, and you would think, okay, where do they fly over or where do they roost, you know? And Malaysia actually has, has quite a number. I mean, I was um, quite surprised when I read this number that we have actually 55 what they call important bird and biodiversity areas, IBAs. Mm-hmm. And they cover over about 4 million hectares. Wow. And these are like, yeah, um, these are really important sites where, where migratory birds can flock. And uh, one of these, for example, is in Sarawak. It's called the Bako Buntau Bay. And it's really quite a special little half-moon bay where the numbers of endangered birds have actually gone up over the years, mm. as MNS has found. Yeah, MNS Kuching Branch have been documenting that and they really confirm its importance as a, as, as a site, you know. And uh, yeah, so um, head over to Makaranga because we, we just did a story on that, uh, on Bako Buntal Bay and how important it is for migratory birds. Uh, there's, there's no big cities nearby. So hopefully, you know, the lights and stuff like light, light pollution is being held at bay and maybe that's one of the reasons why uh, birds flock over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's really quite quite a special area uh, and uh, the story is available also in Chinese as well as in Basa Malaysia. Okay, yeah, I guess uh, as the theme said, you know, there are solutions that are readily available and simple enough, you know, just switch off your lights. So, okay, we'll head to uh, Makaranga for that full interview. But speaking of things that have been in the news, the lanthanide rare earth mining, I mean, that's uh, really been uh, dominating the headlines. So that's a rare earth mining project in Hulupera. It has secured the DOE's approval to commence with the pilot project. But we know that um, environmentalists are quite against it, uh, especially Sahabat Ala Malaysia have come out to say quite a bit. Uh, Can you tell us why? Yeah, there are actually many reasons to be really concerned about it. So, so this project is in Hulu Para. Um, it's so it's quite close to the borders between uh, Thailand, Kedah, and Para. Okay, so it's, it's in that it's in that area, and this project is a rare earth mining project. So, of course, now when we say that, you think of liners, right? Mm-hmm. And this project is uh, different in the sense that uh, the project would mine the rare earth minerals here in Hulu Para, and then ship it overseas to be processed. Whereas Linus, you know, we import the minerals from Australia and then we process it over there in Gabing Kwantan. Okay, so it's, it's like different parts of the supply chain. Uh, this one here in Hulu Para is just approved. It's in the very early stages, uh, in the very upstream, the, the mining part. And it covers an area of 2000 uh but close to 2200 hectares so it's, it's not it's not small yeah it's, it's quite a big area and the area includes forest reserves it includes agricultural land the the, the area all the, the the different parcels in the area are owned by felcra owned by Menteri Besar incorporated para owned by Perbadanan Pembangunan Pertanian Negeri Perak. So I guess that's the agriculture development body of uh, Perak. Mm-hmm. So basically, they are, the land is owned by agencies and corporations of the state government and the federal government. And the environmental impact assessment uh, got approved. And so then now they're going to, you know, basically it means that they can start. Lah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then, so what, what are the concerns right now? Uh, we, I mean, Makaranga did not, managed to get like the full copy of the environmental impact assessment. So what we are saying is, is uh, what I can say is actually based off the, I guess the summary copy that is found on the DOE website. Now, 
the that summary itself already has plenty to be concerned about. So the area is in the environmentally sensitive area, level one. Now, which means by right, according to the national physical plan, such an area cannot be developed, logged, uh, or farm uh, unless it's for research, education, or ecotourism. Okay, so that's already like red flag number one. And then, well, of course, the national physical plan is not legally binding. Let's all be clear about that. Uh, and then the the part of the actually the whole area is within uh, a primary linkage in the central forest spine plan. Okay, mm -hmm. and this linkage is supposed to connect the Ulu Muda forest to the Titi Wangsa range forest. So if you imagine an elephant living, and there are of course elephants living in Ulu Muda Kada, right? Elephants living in Ulu Muda could walk all the way from Ulumuda to Taman Negara. Mm. Uh, they can't do that now. <laughs> it's difficult for them to do that now. Maybe they can, but it's very difficult because there are parts of, of, of the forest range that is you know, disconnected and the primary linkages have been identified to reconnect those uh, you know, fragments of forest. Yeah. Now with this project, it's going to further fragment it, right? Mm. So. <laughs> it really begs the question of, you know, the federal government is always talking about central forest spine, central forest spine, central forest spine, and then we want to protect our tigers, we want to protect our elephants, and here is this project involving land owned by federal and state agencies that would require licenses approved by the Ministry uh, of Science, Technology and Innovation, that would require export licenses approved by the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, and a project I'm not sure. It seems like it's going ahead, right? Yeah. So we have all these different, you know, these different messages. You know, it really makes you wonder. You know, what's what's the big plan here? Um, so I, I I mentioned some concerns. Um, there is you know, of course, Sahaba Alam Malaysia, who was actually one of the reviewers of the EIA last year. Yeah. They have recently gone public with their concerns. You know, they they say that the, the water, the rivers, and the underground water could be polluted. And there's also a worry about radiation because uh, although the minerals that the companies are going after are not radioactive, but the soil itself contains samples of thorium, which is radioactive. Mm. So it, it will be in the same, I, I suspect you end up in the same case as Linus, where the waste itself is radioactive, although low radioactivity, but then they have to process it in a safe way according to you know, atomic energy uh, licensing board regulations. So it's radioactive, so they, they, they are concerned about that. But it also gives the federal ministries a lot more, I say, regulation powers, regulatory powers over the whole operation. Yeah, so what can we do now? Yeah, there are many things we can do now. I think, well, of course, the EIA report was approved because I, I suppose the DG of the DOE was convinced that they could do, the developers could put in enough mitigation or prevention steps, right, to, mm. to mitigate the environmental damage. That's the purpose of the EIA report. Um, however, I think, you know, we can get a bit slightly more creative and even suggest that if it's if it's to go ahead, other than just those mitigation measures, I mean, if it's so lucrative, it's it's not, you know, overly demanding to, to suggest that their companies to to um, take on reforestation projects in other parts of the whole forest complex to at least retain a connection of the central forest spine. I'll just put that out there, food for thought, yeah.
Okay. Yeah, I think it was quite shocking because the previous EIA had been rejected, right? So, um, yeah, let's let's see what happens there. I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, they, they do have permission to carry on the pilot project. So, yeah, I guess we'll have to keep updated with that. Um, okay, just before we conclude, guys, I guess, you know, just looking forward, uh, next month, there's also a World Environment Day coming up on the 5th. There's also World Oceans Day on the 8th. The theme is uh, revitalization, collective action for the ocean. Um, are you looking forward to that? Definitely. I think revitalization is a, a very nice word to use uh, because, yeah, you know, climate crisis again and the impact of warming seas on corals. Uh, again, a little plug for Makaranga. We've got two pieces coming up next month uh, covering exactly this issue, uh, both the degradation and impact on corals by warming seas as well as uh, local pollution. So in terms of warming seas, we've got, you know, hopefully no mass, no more mass coral bleaching um Events, although that 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 is, I think, uh, a quite quite difficult to to try and wish for, but one should try and be positive, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mass coral bleaching has happened in Peninsular Malaysia multiple times. Uh, the latest was in 2019, 2020. Yeah, and then uh, four of the the previous times it happened in 1998, 2010, 2014, and 2016 were actually global mass bleaching events that affected 99% of the world's coral reefs. So, you know, that's that's pretty grim. Lah. But the other thing that perhaps we could try and do a little bit more about would be local pollution in terms of runoffs from resorts, rubbish, you know, rivers carrying rubbish down into the seas and stuff like that. But anyway, um, let's celebrate the ocean on, on 8th of June. Uh, and there are some events. So I'm just going to give a shout out to some NGOs who are doing stuff. On the 11th of June, uh, Turtle Conservation Society, the Lang Tengah Turtle Watch, um, resorts in Teluk Bidara and Dungun, in Dungun, Trungganu, right? They're they are having a, a nice little beach cleanup. So if you're out there on the East Coast, go join them. Uh, sometime in conjunction with this, sometime next month, will be Reef Check and Green Samporna. Uh, who will be conducting an eco-divers uh, training for youth in Sampurna, Sabah, yeah, which is quite nice. Yeah. And WWF Malaysia will be holding their Monday Blues discussion series as well. So go check out their various uh, social media and websites and, and get involved. Mm-hmm. And you can just organize your own beach cleanup if you want to, right? It's as easy as that. My thanks to both of you uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Lau Yaohua and Wong Siu Lin, co-founders of Makaranga. Just head to makaranga.org to check out all their wonderful articles. And if you miss any part of today's interview, just head to the BFM app to download the podcast. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my. Or find us on iTunes, BFM 89.9, The Business Station.